Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Today, I want to talk about something that, um, again, I think relates. Actually, I think this is like the perfect segue sermon. I think that this actually has elements of what we were talking about in the prayer series. And I think that there's an idea here that actually is, we're gonna be picking up next week when we begin the giving series. And so I think this is a really, really important message. I don't want you to think that because this message is a standalone that it doesn't really go anywhere. Or maybe you can kind of tune out. Tune in today, I promise you. You're gonna be blessed. And uh, I, I think that this is gonna impact not just your prayer life, but also the things that we talk about next week. But has anybody ever done the right thing, but it wasn't really for the right reason? Yeah, anybody ever done that before? Anybody ever like, you know, you pulled in to the parking spot, right? And you kind of scraped the car that was next to you. And then like you just kind of pulled across the aisle into another spot. But then when you got out, you saw the security cameras, and so then you wrote the note, right? You know, sorry I did this. I'm an honest citizen and wanted to share my info. We're just going to confess some things today, so let it get all awkward up in here. Anybody ever done the right thing but for the wrong reasons? Um, just so some of y'all know, Chelsea's birthday is December 12th. And what I have found in my experience is that usually if I'll get her something good on December 12th, my December 25th turns out better doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And that uh, doesn't really have anything to do with my message, but I thought I'd share because we're confessing today. Uh, anybody ever like confess to something at work because you knew that they had your, like your badge scan time or maybe the video footage, you all aren't gonna admit today, right? That's not happening. I can remember, uh, you know, growing up, um, I was bigger than Jason. And so I used to beat Jason up a lot. Uh, Jason's my brother, for those that don't know. He's sitting right over there in the coral shirt. Uh, but it's, uh, I was always bigger than Jason in body, and he was always bigger than me in mouth. And so I used to beat Jason up quite a bit when we were younger. And I just want to say, Jason, I'm sorry. I didn't know it would make you bald, or I wouldn't have done it so much. Um, but I can remember saying these four lines or some version of these four lines probably about a million times in my childhood. Um, stop crying, usually said in a whisper. Here, you can hit me back. Then after he hits me, ow, you got me so good. So you're not going to tell, right? Anybody growing up with siblings know what I'm talking about? Can I hear an amen or see a hand in the air? Yes, we know exactly about that. I did the right thing. I let him get a hit back on me. I didn't block it. I kind of just squeezed my eyes tight and, and let him hit at me. I, I did the right thing, but I did it for the wrong reason. The reason that I did it was because I was not as scared of his punch as I was of my dad's belt. Yeah, my dad came along and had his own theory of child discipline before all the experts told him he was doing it wrong. Dad had a black leather belt. It was about this wide, and it had two rows of holes. Anybody remember those two buckle belts, right? Two holes. And it wasn't like he had six of them. Like the holes went all the way around the belt, and that thing would like whistle and sing through the air when it was bringing swift justice to my sit down. So, but like we're all scared of being hurt. We really are. And, and, and you know, none of us wants to be hurt and, and we go through things and maybe we hurt other people. But if we're smart, if we're smart, when we're smart, what we do is we kind of get our fear under control and we figure out what the greater threat is. And then we act according to what the greater threat is, right? Jason wasn't a greater threat than my dad's belt. So even though I didn't want Jason to hit me, I really didn't want my dad to whoop me. And so that's the way that we respond and that's the way that we kind of process these things. And, and today what I wanna talk about is, I wanna give us something that will, will encourage us, will remind us, will hopefully energize us to 
do the right thing, to be the right kind of person, uh, uh, to, to lean into following Jesus, to lean in to taking steps that move us closer to Jesus. And maybe that's just, you know, you starting the 21 days of prayer with us. Maybe that's you coming back next Sunday. Just something to lean in because you have assessed life. You have assessed your circumstances. You have assessed the situation and you have found out what the greatest need is in your life. And here's the thing about following Jesus. I'm just going to kind of like pull back the curtain on Christianity if I can for a little bit. As we engage with following Jesus, not just kind of like when we call ourselves Christians, but as we really begin to engage in following Jesus, it leads us into some scary places sometimes. It can lead us into some uncomfortable circumstances. Some Following Jesus can, like doing the right thing can. Chasing the Holy Spirit can, can lead us into some unknown places. Following a spiritual presence in a physical world is naturally going to bring tension at different points as we kind of wrestle with our, our, you know, what we call our reality here, what we see around us, what we see happening around us, and then what God says is realer, what God says is truer than what our five senses maybe are telling us. And I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you maybe have experienced this in finances or in giving, right? And that's what we're talking about next week. Just notice that little plug right there. Might be with forgiveness, with a relationship where somebody did you wrong. Like you have no reason to go and mend that fence and Jesus tells you, you be the one to go and mend that fence. Like, Jesus, that is so not fair, that is so uncomfortable, and I don't like. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, following Jesus, really following Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, not just being a nominal Christian, it's going to lead us into places of tension at different times as we follow him. And that's why Jesus over and over and over, if there was kind of one word to take away from the message that Jesus would, would give his disciples or those that were trying to follow him, it would be this idea of faith or this idea of trust. If there was not one word, but one idea that he kept trying to put into people's hearts and put into people's minds over and over and over again was the idea to trust him to fear not, right? Fear not as in don't fear, but then to fear not, N-A-U-G-H-T, fear nothing. Like don't fear ever and don't fear anything. And this is kind of the practicality of Christianity, to live listening to a spiritual voice, to live plugged into a spiritual reality that we count as more true than our physical circumstances. That's big. Hello, I just want to pause real quick and tell you, that's big to ignore your eyeballs, to ignore your eardrums, to ignore all of the things that are trying to tell you don't do this or that doesn't make sense, to ignore your five senses and to trust what Jesus tells you, to fear not as we face choices and circumstances and forks in the road of following Jesus. Listen, Christianity was not meant to give us a sense of comfort so that we can kind of withdraw into our cocoon and leave the world to its course. Following Jesus, although it is a personal experience, it was never supposed to leave you in a personal existence cut off from everybody else. There are no Lone Ranger Christians in the Bible. Like you can't have it. And maybe you've been this person or maybe you know this person that thinks, well, uh, you know, I, I'm spiritual or I believe in God, but I just don't want to go to church. I'm spiritual or I believe in God, but I don't necessarily need to belong to a church to do that. That idea, I, I understand maybe where you're coming from. I'm sorry for all the past hurts maybe that you've experienced. Like I don't trivialize that. I, I believe it's very real. I know that that happens because people are just people. But that idea is not something that Jesus ever taught. We are meant to live within the collective body that he calls his body. And Jesus constantly made his followers conscious of their brokenness, conscious of the, the fact that we all need to be put back together and made whole. But then once we were made whole, or once we began the process of following him and being made whole, he then turned us around and made us face outward and go and reach other people who were in brokenness, reach other people who were lost as we were lost. And to become his hands and his feet his voice, and his lips, and his ears. 
to hear what's going on, in his eyes to see those around us that are hurting. And so our Christianity comes with a charge to be a Christian, to be Jesus to our world, to be courageous for our world, and to follow Jesus into situations and circumstances and confrontations that make us, quite frankly, quite uncomfortable sometimes. But this gets lost a lot of times in the whole call to personal salvation. But as I read Jesus's methods, as I read the message that Jesus kind of gave, the messages that he gave, I think the church has a bit of course correcting to do. And, and I think that like this preacher, me, myself, I'm going to make sure that I don't tie Jesus's invitation to some kind of personal reward, you know, personal kind of thing, and make you forget about all of the scary places that God has called us to. We all have to know, we all have to be convinced of our reason for following Jesus. Are you following Jesus for what you get out of it? Or are you following him because you believe in the truth of what he came to bring into reality in our world? Amen. How many know that he prayed, our Father which is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom Come, your will be done. That's us. It's us bringing the kingdom into our world. But people become Christians for a lot of reasons. And frankly, in our hyper kind of, you know, self-focused society, people become Christians for a lot of very personal reasons. Uh, reasons that could maybe be said to involve personal gain. And there's this sort of implied promise that declaring our Christianity will kind of magically make us a better person. But is that what Jesus fully and totally promised for Christianity? That we would just become better people, better individuals. Now hold on before you grab your kids and, and head to the car. Hear me out for a little bit, okay? If you follow Jesus, you will be a better person. If you start leaning into surrendering more of yourself, you will be more forgiving. You will be more loving, easier to be around. You will be kinder and more patient with your family. But that does not happen magically. Anybody that's been following for Jesus for any length of time can tell you it's hard to be like Jesus all the time. Quite frankly, there are some people it is hard to be like Jesus with. Can I hear an amen like husbands are like, babe, can I say amen? Is that, you know? But when you read the four little like mini biographies of, of Jesus's career, you don't find Jesus going around saying, hey, if you'll follow me, I'll teach you how to be the best version of yourself. He never says that. Instead, what Jesus does consistently time and time again with different crowds and different audiences is saying, you don't need to be a better version of yourself. You need to die to yourself. Take up your cross, follow me. And to us, the cross has been just so cleaned up and made pretty, right? We wear the cross around our necks or around our wrists or put it hanging on our, our rearview mirror or tack it up on the wall somewhere. But the cross was a brutal, brutal method of execution. The cross was bloody and smelly and violent and gory. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, Take up your cross and follow me. And frankly, dying to self is just not very comfortable to do. It's not very easy to do. And in fact, you can't even nail yourself to a cross. You have to go through circumstances and have people hurt you by nailing you to your cross. And still Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. So who wants to join the church? We're going to pass out membership cards right now. Anybody want to sign up for following Jesus, right? I'd flunk as a motivational speaker, I can tell. But we bumped up against this, you know, the, the other idea that people have about following Jesus. We kind of talked about uh, this a little bit in our, our prayer series. Uh, a lot of people think that we're Christians or we follow Jesus because we think that Jesus will give us a whole lot of good things. And the religious word for that, the church word for that is blessings. If I pray more, I'll get more blessings, if I be a better Christian, I'll get more blessings. But if I don't pray as much, I'll be blessed very little. If I'm a bad Christian, then I won't have as much blessing. Now, again, stay with me for a second. I am not saying that you won't experience more blessing if you follow Jesus more closely. But if we think that Christianity or if we think that prayer is some kind of heavenly reward system, then what happens is our blessings end up depending on our behavior. 
We tie our blessing to a measure of our own goodness instead of understanding that blessings flow from his infinite goodness. That we cannot earn his blessings. I can't do enough good things to make God love me. But in fact, when I was at my worst, Jesus taught. When I was at my worst, the first followers of Jesus showed us. That's when he loved me the most. He didn't wait for me to get my stuff cleaned up. He didn't wait for me to figure it all out or get everything together. But to me in my brokenness, he came. And that's why we worship you. That's why we say, forever forever you are my savior we don't say when I'm good you are my savior we say forever you are my savior and listen to me anytime somebody says to you if you'll do this or if you'll do these three things, then you can expect this outcome. If anybody ever tells you, listen, if you'll pray these words, this will happen. If anybody ever tells you, share this with 10 friends in the next 10 minutes, yeah, yeah, I, any Facebook users in the house, right? If anybody ever tells you, send money to this ministry, If anybody ever tells you, if you will donate this offering to the church, God will bless you. Listen to me. That is not Christianity. That is magic. That is not what Jesus promised. Magic is this idea where, you know, we stir in three witches' hairs and the eye of Newt, right, into a big black pot and out comes a brand new car. That's magic. That's not Christianity. And here's the tricky thing about magic. All magic works some of the time, right? Anybody ever had a good luck charm? Anybody ever crossed your fingers? Anybody ever not step on a crack? Or you uh, caught you, repent. Your mom's fine. You tap danced all those years. I know that it's just not, it's why athletes have rituals, right? And they have habits. Any men know what I'm talking about? That's somebody's lucky bat, somebody's lucky paraclete, somebody's lucky ritual they always do after they make the shot or whatever. We see this everywhere in our society. And unfortunately for some people, magic thinking or religious formula thinking has kind of gotten mixed in with our Jesus thinking. And when the formula doesn't work, we think that it's because of us. We messed it up somehow. We haven't been good enough. We haven't prayed hard enough. We haven't given enough. And that, that thinking's even in the Bible. That's what Job's friends thought of him. That's why when Jesus was walking with his disciples and saw a blind man, his own disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? Like, when you sin, curses come on you. That's not Christianity. That is magic. I could tell, you know, people in this room, I mean, the economy's starting to pick up a little bit, but, you know, just a little while ago, and there were a lot of people looking for jobs. I could tell you, okay, listen, I'm going to help you get a job. Every morning, I want you to get up, get your Bible, get dressed, go stand in front of the mirror, and open your Bible to the book of Job. (laughs) And then I want you to read the first two chapters for two weeks and you will get a job. I could promise that to you. And if I say that to enough people, guess what's gonna happen? Somebody's gonna get a job. And then it starts going on Facebook and it gets viral and somebody interviews and that goes on YouTube and then there's a million views and then some more people try it. And when more people try it, more people will say, it works. It works, and all magic works some of the time. But Jesus does not wear a black cape. He does not have a top hat with a rabbit hidden inside. He is not a magician. Jesus did not promise us that life would be pain-free and problem-free. In fact, like we said a little while ago, Jesus told his followers, in this world, you will have troubles. It's going to, that's the only promise Jesus gave us that you will have troubles. But along with that comes his assurance that you can cheer up knowing this because he has overcome the troubles that come against us in life. But that kind of messes with our ideas of blessing, doesn't it? 
well, wait, I thought when I got good things, God really likes me. And if bad things happen, well, then God must not be with me anymore. And maybe the things that we have been counting as blessings, maybe the things that we have been asking for as blessings aren't really blessings at all. Maybe they are accidents of circumstance. And accidents of circumstance are a terrible way to check just how tied in and close to God we really are. So, if that's not how I can measure my Christianity, why are we Christians? If that's not the benefit of being a Christian, why am I a Christian? If I don't get good things based on my behavior, why do I pray? When life gets scary and overwhelming and when things and people in my life don't behave in a blessed way, what's the comfort in my calamity? And that's what I want us to look at today. And I'm hoping that after we see this today, when we, after this time, when we go out and we read about Jesus's teachings, when we read his instructions that he left to his disciples, I believe that we'll start seeing this everywhere. It's all through the scriptures, all in the stories of Jesus and his public career. There was like three different examples I could have preached this from easily, but it was a point of emphasis between Jesus and his followers. It was even in his last words that he gave to his followers in what the Bible calls the Great Commission. But here's the good news to us, because we struggle with this sometimes. These guys that were right with Jesus, face-to-face, face-to-face with Jesus, living with Jesus, walking with him physically, going where he went, eating what he went, they struggled with it too. And the reason that they struggled with it and the reason that we struggle with it is because it's not what we think of first of why we pray, when we think of why we pray. And I hope that you saw this underneath in in our series on prayer education, and I hope that you see it again today. But one of the times that Jesus was laying this out for his followers, uh, it was toward the beginning of his career, and everything was kind of shining and new, and he hadn't really ran into a lot of hard opposition yet. You know, all of his followers were happy to be with him, and, and, and they were full of optimism and hope. And he had like these three groups of followers. One was like the crowd, and that was usually like local to a village or to a region. He would go into a region, and a bunch of people from there would come to hear Jesus. But then when he left, they would stay there. And then he had a, a larger group of people, usually around 70 or so, that he called his disciples. And they used to actually kind of travel around with him to these different cities and regions. And uh, in fact, we read in, in the New Testament about Lazarus and Mary Magdalene and Susanna and Joanna. Uh, and, and some of the ladies didn't always travel with his crew. It's, it's, it's interesting to me that the ladies supported Jesus's career financially. Like if you ever wonder where Jesus kind of got the support for his campaign, for his movement, it happened through these very wealthy ladies um, doing giving next three weeks for all the ladies that want to hear. All right, so going on. And then from that big group of disciples, <laughs> uh, Jesus had 12 that he actually called into a closer relationship with him. And those 12 kind of became more well-known. And when we think of Jesus's disciples, we tend to think of these 12 men. Well, Matthew was one of those 12 hand-picked men that was close to Jesus. He was picked to be one of Jesus's many Jesuses. And he thought this was epic. And Matthew actually wrote down a biography of Jesus's career. And it's in the new part of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the first one in there, the first document, the first what we call book in the new part of your Bible. And Matthew's telling us in in chapter 10 of his document, he's telling us that Jesus called them together so that he could send them out. Again, it wasn't this personal edification thing. It was Jesus using them to launch his movement out into the wider world. And so he starts telling them, uh, you know, Matthew's telling us, okay, Jesus was saying to us, like, here's what you're gonna do. and I'm gonna send you out with my message and I'm gonna give you the power to do some of the same things I'm doing. You're gonna heal the sick and you're gonna cast out devils and here's where you should go and here's how long you should stay and here's how much money you should take and here's what to do if this happens or that. He's given all these instructions. And Matthew's like furiously writing it down. John was there with him too. John's furiously writing it all down. Peter's there and he's like, Matthew, can I just copy your notes later? Like, I don't, I don't need to write all this down. But think about that. That had to be so awesome for them that Jesus had called them to be his closest followers. And now Jesus was giving them the same exact power the same words that he had used that had so changed their lives and the lives of hundreds and thousands of other people, Jesus was giving that to them. And that had to make their hearts race and, and feel kind of you know, good about what was going on. And then in the middle of all the good stuff, 
I mean, when everything is just great and we can't wait to get started and let us go, Jesus, you know, like tell us, ready, set, go. Jesus throws them this really confusing curveball and he starts talking about all the bad stuff that's gonna happen to them. And like, wait a minute, you know, it's all good at this point. Everybody loves us right now. You're a rock star. There are crowds of thousands coming to see you and to hear you, and we're the guys closest to the guy. But then Jesus starts warning them that things aren't always going to be so rosy. And he says in chapter 10, verse 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. And they're thinking, well, I'm a sheep snake going out among flying wolves. Like, we got to talk to Jesus about mixing his metaphors. This is You know, where is he going with all of this stuff? And Jesus goes on and he tells him, so be on your guard because you're going to be handed over to the local councils and you'll be flogged in the synagogues. And Matthew's writing and he kind of like pauses. Like, wait, flogged? Nobody said anything about being flogged when you invited me to follow you. I thought everything was going to turn out great. You didn't say anything about flogging when you came over my house for dinner, Jesus. But now you're telling me that I'm going to be flogged. And here's what's amazing about this. Jesus is peering into their future. And we actually have, and we actually know from historical accounts outside of the Bible, from archeological accounts and historical accounts and uh, all of these stories and, and records that are found outside of the Bible that everything that Jesus told them that they would have to suffer and endure, they actually suffered and endured. It's almost like Jesus could see the future, right? But to these 12 men, right in the middle of it, at that point in Jesus's ministry, this, like being flogged, that was all news to them. Like what in the world do you mean I'm going to be flogged? We are superstars. And Jesus says, this is going to change soon and you're going to be flogged. And not only are you going to be flogged, you're going to be flogged in church, Like, that's a hard offering call, somebody. Like, when you get to church, they flog you when you get called for the offering. And so, Jesus, I'm going to be flogged. That's scary. The people have died from that. Flogging leaves permanent marks on your body, and we are going to be flogged. And Jesus isn't done yet. He says, on my account, you're going to be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and the Gentiles, and that maybe that sounds a little bit better, right? We're, we're on better ground again, you know, coming to an audience with the governor, an audience with the king, you know, and we don't really get the Gentile part because we don't, you know, we're Jews. We're not supposed to like Gentiles. It's against the law for us to even go into Gentiles' houses. So we don't, we're not sure about that, but kings and, and governors, you know, we're okay with that. But then Jesus kind of closes the loop on that. And he says, but when they arrest you, like, wait a minute, Jesus, When they arrest us, what are you talking about? Aren't you the good guy in this story? Like there's a new sheriff in town is a saying, aren't you the new sheriff? Like how are they going to arrest us if we are your followers? And Jesus says, yes, when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. Now look, I'm not sure what they were thinking, but maybe you're like me. If I get arrested... I'm not sure that the first thing I'm worried about is what to say or how to say it. If I get arrested, the first thing I'm worried about is making sure that I don't get put in a cell with Debo. Like, I, like I, I want out of jail. I do not want to be in jail. I don't want to have to say anything in jail. I do not want to have to be there. And Jesus says, at that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you who is speaking, but the spirit of your your father who is speaking through you. And these guys are like, Jesus, this this is so strange. This is so dark. This is such a horrible message for a Sunday when you have lots of guests Like telling them that following Jesus is going to be hard and following Jesus is going to be a little bit scary. And if I get arrested, Jesus, I'm not sure that I want you to give me what I have to say. I want you to give me a get out of jail free card. I don't want to be arrested for following you. Anybody else feel that way? I don't want to be arrested for following Jesus. But Jesus, we're going to be arrested and flogged? Yes. 
And in the middle of our arrest and our trial, God will be with us somehow, yes. And God wants to use that opportunity to speak through us somehow, yes. Okay, I I don't really understand it. And you keep telling us he's a good, good father. So why doesn't he just keep us from being arrested in the first place? You're telling me to be confident, you know, that he's my heavenly father and he's gonna be with me always. But this is not how I imagined my heavenly father being with me always. That's not what I thought this was all about. And Jesus isn't even done with all the bad news. He goes on in verse 21, brother is gonna betray brother to death. Like I I know Jason and I fought a lot, but it never got that bad. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And again, Jesus is actually looking forward in time to the time when Jerusalem would actually be surrounded by the Roman army and there would be different factions and different insurrections that would rise up politically in those times. And yes, families were split apart. Families were divided because of the chasm and the break that was happening within the Jewish society because of the Jesus movement. Jesus was predicting things that we know from history turned out to be true. And Jesus is telling them, get ready. Get ready. Anytime you start a movement that goes against entrenched power, you can expect conflict. Now, did anybody catch that? Did anybody catch the personal application of that? That anytime you start upsetting the way things have always been, Anytime you start taking things out of your life that have ruled you for years and years and years, you can expect conflict. Don't expect those things and those behaviors and those attitudes to go and to leave without putting up a fight, a bitter fight, the kind of fight that will try and break your family apart, the kind of fight that will try and wear your mind down. Did you catch that? At any time you start bringing a new Lord over your life, you can expect things to go badly for you. In other words, what Jesus is telling them is sometimes your blessing might be disguised as your battle. That what you go through is leading you to something that you could never go through or obtain without going through what you are going through. Your blessing is disguised and hidden in your battle. But what did we expect was gonna happen when we started unseating the things that made us like we were before? The enemy is not ready to let us go without a fight. And then Jesus kind of sums it up in verse 22. He says, you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus, this is hard. Jesus, I'm not sure that I'm ready to follow you if this is what it entails. Jesus, this doesn't sound very magical. This doesn't sound very comfortable. This sounds very confusing, and it certainly makes us wonder if maybe we messed the formula up somehow. This is new information to following you. This is frightening information to, follow you, to following you, for following you. And Jesus knows what they're thinking because Jesus is just like that. And there, there's this tension now that things might not always be great following Jesus. And it's something that we have all wrestled with at some point in following Jesus. And if you, in your following Jesus, you don't understand what he's talking about right here, hang on. Can I hear an amen from a seasoned Christian? Like if you don't know what he's talking about, having things come against you and try and drag you back into an old way of living or an old way of life, just hang on. I am telling you, when you start trying to unseat the things that made you broken like you were before, get ready, there will be a fight. And Jesus promised this. Jesus, this sounds pretty stressful. I thought I was supposed to be too blessed to be stressed. doesn't work that way. I'm going to be suffering wrong at the hands of other people. It doesn't sound like a blessing that I want to make room to receive. But then Jesus brings us 
to the point where he wants all of his followers to end up. If you follow me, things might get bad because things get bad for everybody. But listen up, when those dark things happen, when chaos breaks loose and all hell seems to be breaking loose in your life, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Jesus, we're about to get arrested. Do not be afraid. Jesus, I've never lived this kind of life before. Do not be afraid. Jesus, I've never gone through life this long without that person's influence or without that person kind of telling me what I should do or how I should. Do, do not be afraid. Jesus, I'm not even sure what steps I, could, I should take. I'm not sure even how to follow you. I don't even know how to pray. Do not be afraid. Well, what do you mean, do not be afraid? And then Jesus just makes it confusing because Jesus is good at making it confusing sometimes. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There it is. There's the word, the H-E double hockey sticks. The word that as a preacher, you're never supposed to say on Sunday morning. And Jesus is introducing to them. Jesus is wanting to introduce to us something that he keeps going back over and over and over again in his teachings with his disciples. And again, they struggled with getting this. They did not get it. And we struggle with accepting this and believing this. Because from what I can see in reading the the accounts of their lives, it wasn't until they saw a risen Jesus that they finally got what Jesus was trying to say. It wasn't until they saw Jesus die on the cross and then saw him again alive and he said he was alive forevermore. That's when they really started to take hold of this phrase. Don't, kill the, don't be afraid of the ones who can kill your body, but be afraid of the one who holds the eternal destiny of your soul in his hands. But how does this work? Do not be afraid, but be afraid. Do not be afraid, but be afraid. Fear not, but be afraid. Which one is it, Jesus? And he knows what they're thinking and he knows what we're thinking. And so he goes on and he tells us in the next verse, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's. Jesus, you're talking about hell now. And now you're trying to shift the subject back to birds. Like not even rare and exotic birds. You're talking about sparrows. Now, don't miss this. Think about this, okay? He's called them. He's chosen them. He's given them purpose and a mission in their life to usher in his new kind of life, his new kind of power. And he's telling them, listen, there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a struggle as you try and bring this new kind of life into an old world. But if you knuckle under if you silence your voice because of the pain and you don't in turn go and tell someone else how they can be free from their pain, if you taste the new freedom, the new kind of life, and you do not share that with someone else, you are playing on the wrong team. See, that's hard. That's hard to accept as a Jesus follower. That not only do I have a mission and a purpose but I actually have to live out that mission and that purpose in following Jesus. That it's not just personal and I can't just go home and shut my doors and never come into contact with anybody, but by me being silent about the goodness of a risen savior, I am actually playing for the other team. Ow, ow, that's hard. And so he tells them, when you face circumstances that are opposing you, when you face these battles that come against you and try and drag you into the old version of who you were, just remember who it is that is really big and really powerful. It's not Jason you should fear. It's dad's double whole belt that you really better be afraid of. If you switch teams, if you leave God, if you leave his freedom, if you leave everything that he has brought you into and go back into the old way of life, that's when you need to be afraid. But in those moments where there's tension, 
And in those moments where we feel the fear, and in those moments where we feel tiny and worthless and wonder if we are forgotten and we feel as though we're caught between raging evil around us and the fearful power of God on the other side, I want you to remember something, that not even one sparrow falls to the ground outside of my father's care. That he sees you, that he knows you, that he is reaching for you and calling for you. Think about that. Think about that. That yes, there is something to fear, but outside of that thing that there is to fear. And once you get past our small way of thinking that we can see the heart of a father that has left all of his power, left all of his glory, and stepped into our world to rescue us that he has leveraged that power that we should be afraid of to, uh, to affect our freedom. He has leveraged his power descending from glory and coming into our brokenness. And he has rescued us because no matter how insignificant we felt, no matter how small we felt our lives were, he thought us worth the cost that he played, that he paid. He sees you as worth more than sparrows. There is a proper level of fear in seeing God. There is a proper level of fear that we should experience standing before the unimaginable power of God. But then that imaginable, unimaginable power came close to our brokenness. He ran toward our failure. He ran toward our sin. He called out to us in mercy while we were still sinners. And once you begin to believe that, once you begin to understand just how much he values you, your fear turns into relief. Your fear turns out, come on somebody, your fear should turn into relief that all of that power that I used to fear, all of that greatness that I considered scary and distant and unknown suddenly has come close so that he can be known. He can be known by me. He can make his heart known and his heart tells me that he loves me and I can call him my father. Did you know, think about this. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion where the God of the religion loves those that aren't his followers yet? Every other religion, you have to join the religion before that God will love you. But us, outside of his religion, outside of his covenant, outside of his family, he so loved us that he stepped away from the 99 to find the one. He stepped away from all the good living people to come and find me in my jacked up condition. Can I get a thank you, Jesus, from somebody in the house that he is a good God God. He is a loving father that he has stretched out his arms and proven beyond doubt that he loves us eternally. I am not a believer in just a God. I am believer because he is God. I am not a believer in any kind of God. I am a believer in the God that left all of his glory to find me in my dirt, that left all of his holiness to find me in... See, I know me. I know me. I know I look good up here right now. But I know me. I know I wear the title of pastor, but I know me. I know what was in my heart. I know where my own desires were leading me. I know what the outcome of my life would have been if Jesus had not gotten a hold of me and changed me and shown me the death and the destruction that I was about to bring into my own life, into my own marriage, upon my own children. But he has saved me out of his goodness. He has found me where I was. He has rescued me from myself. And we feel him. Think about this. We feel him. We experience him. Ivan, I hope the stage doesn't fall. I, we, ex 
He took out all the support beams and said, Pastor, I like the way it looks. And I'm like, I'm 200 and none of your business pounds. What are you? We come into a room. Hello. And Dustin's up here singing. And he's in shape because he's young so he can tuck his shirt in. He's dancing and he's bouncing around. Stephanie's a new mom. And she's one of those new moms that like didn't gain any baby weight. What's up with that, Stephanie? We see hope. We see Ashley. We see all these up here singing and worshiping and it's songs. And sometimes we don't even know the words or sometimes we sing new songs. And, and we come in and we fought all the way to church, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And the kid lost his shoe and there's a dirty diaper somewhere. No, wait, all my kids are out of diapers. Like all of these things happen and we come through the doors and then suddenly as we begin to forget everything going on in life and as we begin to instead focus on a God that would love us like that, we are transported, we are teleported out of a physical reality and suddenly we feel the air from heaven blowing into this room and it gives us hope that the air from heaven can blow into our life, blow us into a new reality and a new way of living and it's scary sometimes and we don't always get it sometimes and we thought that that meant that life was always going to be good from here on out and it doesn't turn out that way but Jesus has warned us about it. He told us it was coming, but along with the warning and along with the prediction came his words, do not be afraid. If I came down to rescue you, then I will never leave you. And yes, you may have trouble. Your life will not be absent of troubles, but neither will your life be absent of me. And he comes into services and he comes into your prayer closet and he comes into your car on your way to work and he lets you know that no matter what you face, you don't have to be afraid. Afraid. You don't have to be afraid anymore. In this world, you will have troubles. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, and I am with you. I am with you. Let me skip ahead two slides. Jesus' message was not, do, be, do not be afraid. I will not let bad things happen. That's magic. Jesus' message was, do not be afraid. You're not alone when bad things happen. That's relationship. That's trust. That is the inalienable presence of a God who did not give us his love because we earned it. And if you didn't do anything to deserve the love of God, then what could you possibly do to lose the love of God? Huh. Huh. I think I'll say that again. If you did not do anything to deserve the love of God, what could you do to lose the love of God? What could you do to forfeit the mercies of a God who found you like you were anyway? What could you do to lose the grace of a God who came down to where we are to take us to the reality in which he lives? To give us not an escape from this world, but heaven in this world. Because heaven is where he is. That's the kind of faith that overwhelms all fear. That's the kind of faith that turns our fear of a scary and distant God into an unshakable confidence in the God who can never be defeated even by death itself. But he is with us. He is for us. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Come on all over this room. Can you just close your eyes and thank him? Come on, can you close your eyes and thank him that we don't have to be afraid anymore? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So listen, here's what Jared thinks. Here's what I think or why I think 
that this is where Jesus wants to take us, to this idea of not being afraid even when bad things happen. Because this is the only kind of trust and this is the only kind of faith and confidence that is going to free you to live your life the way that Jesus lived his life. This is the only kind of confidence that any bad thing that comes my way, God's in control. Anything that you do to me that hurts me or that wounds me, you know what? God's in control of that. God told me that that would come. God told me that this would happen. But he also told me that I don't have to fear you. I don't have to respond and lash out in self-defense. That he cares for me more than he cares for the sparrows whose funeral he attends every single time. That he knows me. That he sees me. And whatever hurt comes to me, I don't have to get even. I don't have to get back because he is in control. This is the only kind of confidence and trust that can free us to love someone who has hurt us. Maybe someone has even hurt you so bad that you would consider them an enemy now. But remember, Jesus said, love your enemies. Remember, Jesus said, pray for your enemies. And we respond with, well, Jesus, I don't even pray for my friends, so. But it's not until you see who he is. It's not until you understand how much he loves you. It's not until you understand how great and powerful and terrible he is. Come on, I I use that word not lightly. I use that word very seriously. How terrible, how unknowable, how unimaginable the power of someone that created the sun, someone that carved out the Grand Canyon with his pinky. I shake and I tremble as I stand before power like that. And if I didn't know his heart, if I didn't know his person, if I didn't know what he thought of me, I would be very scared indeed. But in Jesus Christ, he came into my brokenness and he came into your brokenness. He came into our brokenness, our darkness. And he shines as the light of all the world. He steps into that, that hunger in our souls. Anybody know what I'm talking about where you tried a lot of things in life and it's just like you're still empty. And to our hunger, he says, I'm the bread of life. And that thirst that we have, that thirst that drives us, that thirst that keeps us searching and trying and trying and trying. He says, I am the water of life. Come and drink, come and draw. Come and I will put a river of living water, a fountain springing up within you. That's who he is. That's who he wants to be to us. Not so that we can escape the pain and the problems of this life, but so that we can know that no matter what we go through, we never have to be afraid because he is with us. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.